Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing Occupational Therapy's role in Opioid Recovery Podcast with our guest, Dr. Monica Robinson. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone, and uh, we are happy that you are here. We're happy that uh, Dr. Monica Robinson from the Ohio State University is with us today on the podcast today, and we're going to be talking about opioids and occupational therapy. So, Monica, thanks so much for joining us today. Could you just tell us a little bit about your uh, trip into occupational therapy and how you came to talk to us today about opioids? Um, Sure. Uh, When I first became a therapist, I did work in mental health for the first several years, and definitely had an interest in uh, mental health throughout my my career, hence I'm board certified in mental health occupational therapy. Uh, uh, Ohio is one of the epidemic centers for the crisis in opioids, and as my brother-in-law was the safety director for the city, he often spoke to me about the opioid crisis because I was working at uh, Talbot Hall, which is, occupation, is, is Ohio State University's detox unit. And what we were finding is more and more people were coming in with opioid use disorder, and that was really a concern. So I was often talking to my brother-in-law about what is the city doing to address this issue? And I've continued my interest in this as being a member of AOTA's Committee on Opioid Use Disorders, and then subsequently became the chair of that ad hoc committee, really helping occupational therapists identify how they can work with individuals with substance use disorder and recovery from pain. Gotcha. So if you could just talk a little bit about some of your history um, as a as an occupational therapist working with, with this population. So when you started um, when you were first licensed, what was it, five years ago, six years ago, something like that? Yeah, something maybe more like than, that. Decades. Maybe more than five or six years ago. Would you say that uh, a lot of the, the, the clients, the patients you were working with then had sort of similar issues around opioids or around other, uh, you know, street medications maybe that they, they had access to or no? No, um, th- th- this is an interesting conversation. So certainly... Um, not when I was practicing first in the 1970s, but if you hearken back to the 1970s, um, there was certainly an increase in use of heroin at that time. And then when I was practicing, the crack was more common. Uh, when I first started practicing, crack was more common as a substance of choice. But the difference now is people are dying from using these substances at unprecedented rates, unlike it was in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And that is due to um, the fentanyl and carfentanyl that's being mixed into the drugs. Yeah, even my, um, so I have a a brother, my oldest brother, Rick, um, passed away a few years ago, but um, had schizophrenia and uh, grew up in the the 70s and had a lot of, um, you know, certainly was a, a, a street drug user as well mm-hmm. as part of that. Um, and so would you say, so what's kind of the connection um, between that, uh, so maybe some mental health diagnoses and the opioid crisis? Currently? 
Yeah, so um, one of the thing, one of the important aspects of substance use disorder is to recognize that there is a genetic link to substance use disorder. So that is um, that is one very important component to appreciate. The other is what diagnoses are more likely to use substances. So bipolar one disorder has a very high link to substance use disorder, as do individuals that have um, attention deficit disorder, um, and also those individuals that suffer from anxiety. They may self-medicate to manage that anxiety and or depression. So those types of diagnoses have a strong link to substance use. And it's mostly because people are self trying to self-medicate. And as you said, Ohio being sort of at the forefront of the opioid um, pandemic, um, what, what's, what's it looking like out there in terms of numbers and, uh, you know, kind of the, the frequency that, that we're seeing this in our population? So we're seeing um, definitely specific states having uh, more issues with the opioid crisis than others. So as I had said previously, Ohio is a state of significant concern, as is West Virginia, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, and Maryland. These all seem to be states where the epidemic is um, really concentrated at its worst. When you think of the recent statistics, the CDC National Center for Health Statistics indicated that there was an increase in overdose overdoses during the period of, of COVID. So thinking from April 2020 to April 2021, the instances of overdoses had increased 28.5%, which is really um, unprecedented compared to the previous year during that same span. So the epidemic has really been a significant impact on the increase of um, overdose deaths. Huh. And what do you, do you think that that's any reason that you, you can kind of speculate as to why that might be? Just more isolation? Um, I, re I really can't speak to um, what that might be. But certainly, uh, there's been a plenty of research that has demonstrated that uh, mental health deteriorated in many populations during this period of time. So, Monica, I'm a, a little bit more of a seasoned therapist, and so I remember um, back when I, before I was an occupational therapist, my first degree was in journalism, and so as part of that, um, uh, it was I was in college, sort of at the really the beginning of the HIV um, AIDS pandemic and epidemic that was um, was going on at the time. And I remember going to the uh, Department of Health. I worked for the college newspaper and talking to um, folks from the Department of Health and just feeling uncomfortable in terms of ensuring that I was using the correct language so that I wouldn't be stigmatizing, that I, I would be, you know, trying to be as, as supportive of of individuals um, that had HIV AIDS at the time. And so I feel a little bit about in the same breath now related to that to make sure that I'm using the correct language in terms of opioid use and addiction and those sorts of, of words. And so would you mind just going over some basic vocabulary and and what what language we should be using when we're referring to um, patients or even family members, children, those sorts of things who might be dealing with this. 
Um, Dennis, I'm so glad you brought this up. I'm, I'm really sensitive to language related to any substance use disorder. Stigma about people with substance use disorder might include inaccurate or unfounded thoughts, um, and it really um, stereotypes individuals. And this affects individuals not to be willing to seek treatment because of the stereotyping language. So some stigmatizing language can negatively influence um, they're seeking health care and receiving health care and ultimately being um, in recovery. Words like drug addict, user, um, addict, junkie, substance or drug abuser, former addict, recovering addict, drunk, and yes, alcoholic are all stigmatizing terms. So in general, we want to avoid that. It's more popular currently to use um, language like substance use and to use the descriptor of mild, moderate, or severe to the extent of the substance use, regardless of what the substance of choice is. Um, I often use um, substance use disorder or I'll use opioid use disorder. Uh, I have also been known to use heroin use disorder or heroin use. Um, but really trying to not use the stigmatizing language. But even to this day, I'll, I'll read in the medical record and they'll write, uh, for example, alcoholic or, or heroin addict. And, it, you know, that just really isn't person first language. So using that person first language is the most important thing. So again, you would use something like person with a substance use disorder. So that has a more neutral tone and doesn't define the person as the diagnosis. Gotcha. I, I was just uh, had the good fortune to be in the Canadian Occupational Therapy Association uh, meeting, um, depending on when you're listening to, sometime in the last few years. Um, but uh, af after COVID numbers had come down and it was safe to be in, in person with other folks. But I remember talking to a young occupational therapist who uh, was is Canadian trained and has an American fiance and was interested in potentially moving to the United States and, and being an occupational therapist in her area of practice was community mental health with a, a uh, her focus really was on um, substance users and so specifically heroin substance users. And so um, she, as part of being the team that she was on was actually providing um, heroin uh, to, to users in Canada, which is part of, uh, at least in her province, uh, one of the, uh, one of their interventions to try to decrease uh, crime, to decrease, um, you know, their, uh, you know, increase the safety so that they were, you know, taking heroin and aware that if they, uh, that they were not overdosing or that they had access to medical care if that happened. Um, how are we as a country uh, compared to that? I guess, uh, and then I'll tell you what I told her when she uh, kind of mentioned that to me in terms of coming over and, and using that as an intervention here. Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcasts. Just head over to OccupationalTherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. 
go to occupationaltherapy.com and use promo code podcast and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with occupationaltherapy.com, an AOTA approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code podcast at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's occupationaltherapy.com, promo code podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. So um, that's called clean use. So uh, using uh, clean heroin versus something that's been cut with fentanyl uh, or other substances, you know, that certainly reduces the risk of death. So you're, you're, you're liking that to the 1970s. Um, when they didn't have other substances added to the heroin to the same extent. Um, it clean needle exchange um, and cleaned um, places to use substances is probably as, as far as our country goes. Um, and still that's very, very controversial. And very few places have those sites where people can use their substance of choice and um, and receive care and recommendations or services for recovery if that they want to do that. Um, but they also, in some of these sites, they do have testing. So they'll test the substance before they use it. Gotcha. But yeah, she, to me, it just seemed, you know, that they, from a, a social medicine standpoint and kind of a community acceptance of, of substance use were, were very different in terms of what our approach was. And so I, I and they also have a, a higher percentage of their therapists that are working um, in community mental health and specifically, but also in, in mental health within inpatient settings. Um, so I, I said to look very closely at whatever, whatever state she would be, she would be going into and just really seeing how different um, the services that she were, she was providing uh, compared to, you know, what a lot of um, situations would be here in, in the U.S. So would you say in terms of that, so each state or each municipality even probably approaches safe needle exchanges and um, things like that differently? Yes, it really depends on the legislature and um, if that, um, if they have a policy perspective of um, more community-based care or or less community-based care, and to what extent that they may have more uh, conservative approaches to that care or um, more broad approaches to the care. It's it's very specific to even, like you said, a, a region, e- even beyond a state. When I just even think of the, there were a couple of Ohio State University uh, students that, that died of, it wasn't an opioid, but it was, um, they had fentanyl, that was laced in Adderall, mm-hmm. correct? And um, just yeah. just uh, how tragic that is for the individuals, obviously, and their families, and and everyone who's who's around that. So so is an oh go ahead. Well, it was interesting that you said Adderall. So we're, what we're seeing is fentanyl being mixed into a lot of different um, substances now. So um, you're going to see fentanyl. Uh, being mixed more um, into meth now. We're seeing more individuals using meth, much more individuals using meth um, and less using heroin uh, compared to like three, four years ago. Gotcha. And it's, it's cheaper. So then, and meth is also cheaper than opioids, correct? 
Well, meth is an opioid. Well, but but in terms of being able to get street, oh, yeah. street it's very, meth as opposed to street meth is cheaper than heroin, and and then definitely heroin and street meth is much cheaper than any prescription pill. So, as an occupational therapist, how are we approaching this problem, and how does that you know as we're looking at occupations that they engage in, how are we kind of supporting them and and helping to uh, to support them as best we can as practitioners? Well, um, I would, I'd kind of like to start with uh, what we, how we approach our patient, at least how I do. I, I look at that occupational profile when I'm looking at treatment for folks. And um, Rig and Mon- Monat had a study in 2015 that compared characteristics of prescription drug only users, heroin only users, and then poly substance use. And they found that um, these individuals had really different characteristics. And the important part of this characteristic, these characteristics is comparing them, we can better target our treatment of individuals. So for example, and by the way, this was a very large study, they had 10,000 subjects. So your prescription only um, substance users um, are typically using their opioids for pain management. Um, they tend to be um, individuals that are engaged in in church, in their community. They tend to live in a household with their children. They tend to live in a more rural area or suburban area, and they have higher income. They have uh, uh, they have full time jobs, um, and they really are predominantly using um, pain pills for for pain, it may be a mood disorder. Whereas when you have um, the heroin only user, or the, the heroin only users or the poly substance users, these individuals tend to have poor health outcomes. They're more likely not to have the, the social network. They're more likely not to have custody of their children. They're might have, um, they might have, um, they might be manual laborers or sales um, in the sales industry or in the food industry or unemployed. And they're more likely to seek the emergency room for health care than having a primary care provider. So when you look at these two different populations, it already gives you an opportunity to think about how you're going to approach that occupational profile and work with that individual. So I, I, I really like to look at context. Um, when we think of the OTPF, I like to think about context of their, their personal factors and their environmental factors that include um, not just where they physically live, but also what their social supports are and what are their, um, what is their attitude towards recovery. So that really first is foundational in deciding um, the course of treatment that I might do with that individual. I, you know, Dennis, you're talking about occupations, and um, I, I, I predominantly work with individuals that are poly substance users, or uh, mostly poly substance use, uh, mostly. So poly substance, you're just talking about multiple substances. Sub, multiple substances. So they they'll use an opioid, but they also might. Um, use um, various street drugs they might use amphetamines they might um, they might use cocaine 
and, and alcohol. So really looking at that individual that has um, multiple use. And when I think about this individual, um, I really, when I do my speaking engagements, I really speak to how I think for a particular opioid use disorder that it is, um, it's almost, substance use is almost uh, an occupation in and of itself in that the individuals who are using uh, street drugs, that they're often spending their time um, seeking the medication, or seeking the drug of choice, then using the drug of choice, feeling the effects of the drug of choice, and then again seeking again. The the duration of that medic that that drug lasts is much shorter than a prescription pill. So, you know, they might be seeking every eight hours for use, um, and it's really an all-consuming and. and and in, in this process, there also might be participating in illicit activities to um, obtain money to, to use. So often my, my clients um, end up having some kind of a criminal record. So um, it's a really, it's an all-consuming process when we have individuals using um, these substances that are tainted with fentanyl. So my primary my primary approach to working with this population is really working on a schedule and a routine. Um, and even as basic as, you know, when do you go to bed? You know, when do you wake up? Um, you know, trying to even like, do you eat? Do you have meals? Really looking at the, at the basics of scheduling a routine and a schedule for which their schedule previously was surrounding um, completely around drug use and misuse. So how do you, in terms of that, especially context, so say someone doesn't have a home or doesn't have an apartment, like how do you, where do you start in terms of trying to introduce routine to someone like that? You know, so that's a good question. Often uh, people that um, may not have stable housing um, that I'm working with in a detox unit um, will end up having them uh, go to uh, maybe an inpatient rehab setting or a community-based center that uh, is funded through Medicaid. So trying to get them secured housing is one of our objectives. Um, and also, even if someone has somewhere to go, if they're going back to the same situation where they are living with someone who's using or supplying them with medic uh, with the drugs, that certainly that's going to be a significant problem for this, for sustained recovery. So we want to uh, ideally get them out of that environment. And starting a routine can be something as simple as, are you going to go to a supportive meeting? Uh, so trying to set up, you know, supportive meetings where they can get free meals and what time those free meals are um, available. So again, just starting some basic routines around sleeping, eating, and attending meetings or attending their, their outpatient appointments. So have like, when you're talking about supportive meetings, so have those changed really in terms of, you know, I think people have heard of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and you know, other organizations similar to that that are trying to, to support um, substance users. Have those changed in the last 20 years, would you say? They haven't changed in their philosophy. Um, there was a 
fantastic Cochrane study um, that was just published in the last five years that found st uh, strong efficacious base for these um, support peer support programs. So they're peer run and peer support. Not saying that um, AA or NA, um, their 12 step method is what's efficacious. It's the peer support and accountability that they found was efficacious. And it's really doesn't matter if they're using the the AANA model or if they're using some other non um, non spiritually based models, they all were found to be equally efficacious to hold someone responsible and accountable for the recovery and know that they're not going through this alone. So in, in terms of, um, you know, after you've, uh, you know, you're talking about the occupational profile, a lot of times we're working on treatment teams with nurses, with social workers, physicians, how, how are we, or how are you sort of um, delineating our role uh, as occupational therapy personnel compared to other professionals that may be at least in the same um, category, I guess, of, of types of, of services that, that they're providing? That's a great question. Uh, when we first became involved in the, the detox unit, we really uh, took a mindful approach. Um, that was Dr. Weaver and myself took a mindful approach to what services we would provide. We identified what services were being provided and where there were gaps. And we looked at we looked at the occupational therapy practice framework to really inform how we were going to develop our, our groups. And we also took from the literature on evidence-based practice, where were uh, where was occupational therapy most effective in, in recovery? And we looked at this the occupational dysfunctions that people had, so specific to routine, um, to um, not having enough structure in their life, um, not being engaged in, um, in employment possibly. So we chose to step away from the drug recovery side and really look at how to booster their occupations. So if you if you have trouble fi filling your your time, we want to look at um, leisure exploration or you might want to look at work exploration. Uh, we looked at sleep hygiene. Um, we looked at um, their value exploration and what's important to them and where their new where their values uh, fall. And we also took from Wilcox the idea of belonging and the theories of belonging and how we can help support that. Because we know from a social context, um, if someone feels more that they belong, so like the AANA models, um, if they have a sense that they belong, they're more likely to be able to be successful in sustaining recovery. So we stepped away from um, how to manage triggers for example, or um, things similar to that. And we, we are teaching them more skills within the context of OTPF and occupations. Gotcha. So trying to help them identify some strengths and build on those, I guess, to some degree? Correct. Yeah. So just related to that, I, I think about uh, 
parents and what it would be like to be a, a parent that is a substance user. And can you just talk a little bit about how that complicates um, sort of the their ability to seek treatment or maybe, you know, disincentivizes them to seek treatment as well? Well, um, I, I think I think I kind of would, I'm going to kind of step to the left of that question and think about OT working in recovery. So not everyone works in recovery, right? So my, my individuals, my clients, most, uh, if not all of them, most of them have lost custody of their children or, um, or the custody is with um, their parents. Uh, but a vast majority of my, my clients, you know, they come in, they, they come to me and they're like, um, we'll talk about their goals and their goal is to get custody of their children back. And, you know, that's a, that's a hairy audacious goal. And, you know, I walk them back to say, okay, let's just try to string two days together. Um, right. And get, get visitation rights back. But when we, when we think about about what you just said, um, most of those individuals don't have custody, but also think about the mothers that have, um, were pregnant and uh, having children that have um, natal absence syndrome. So when we think about, you know, the role, like I, I work directly with people that have substance use disorder, Whereas others may not have that same opportunity, but we come across uh, the opioid use disorder across uh, your lifespan. So thinking um, about statistics, in 2019, every 15 minutes, a baby was born suffering from opioid withdrawal. And neonatal abstinence syndrome, or also called opioid withdrawal syndrome, is really becoming a, a significant issue for those individuals that are working in children's hospitals and in in, in NICUs. These 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 children um, have severe symptoms, and they're essentially um, inconsolable. Um, and you know, so when we talk about that parent that you asked about that has substance use, um, that might be at the point that they lose custody of their children. Sometimes it's older, but then you have these children that end up in the foster care system. And it might be a foster care system with a, a family that they're not familiar with, or it might be a kinship caregiver. Um, so you might have um, an older adult caring for this um, many children or this one child that have, um, the parents have lost custody. So, you know, when we think of that, that parent who's a substance, who's used substances, we as therapists come across them in acute care hospitals, in NICUs, and school systems. We come across um, this, the side effect of this in, um, in pre-K, where, where we have kids with suffering from developmental issues that are now being identified from being born um, with uh, a substance in their system. And, and some of those developmental issues um, are attention deficit disorder, if nothing else. 
And I mean, I, I just know in my own history as a therapist that that's, it's so challenging, you know, when you're working with a, a child um, and, uh, you know, that that's parents, maybe their uh, use of uh, substance has contributed to, you know, difficulty that the children has had and just how uh, challenging it can be for, your, for the therapist in, in that situation or teacher or whoever else is, is supporting that, uh, the child um, in terms of, you know, trying to, um, you know, separate the two sometimes can be a little bit of a challenge. I don't know if you've, that would be maybe your mental health background and helping us, um, you know, as, as, as a OT practitioner, you know, figuring out the best way to, to help support that, that child in a way that's not judgmental towards the, the parent. Right. And I, I think that as practitioners, we often don't think of, um, we assume that the caregiver is a parent and we don't, we don't consider that this child might be in foster care. This child might be in kinship care and um, the challenges that come um, with that. And, you know, appreciate and appreciate, you know, all practitioners should be, have some level of training in trauma informed care because trauma informed care, um, these, these children have been traumatized and either physically themselves um, from from birth or you know through what they had to live through socially that we really need to approach working with them from the lens of trauma-informed care yeah and and if folks have not heard of um, mental health first aid is another um, uh, training that you can be certified in as an occupational therapist to really help uh, help us all understand sort of the, the mental health needs and obviously of the if we're in working in pediatrics or in schools of the children that we're working with but also oftentimes the the, the family member the caregiver the the parent whoever it might be that's there before us um, I'm glad you mentioned the first I'm a I'm a mental health first aider and it really does um, it's very important do you have, are the students at Ohio State being trained in mental health first aid they're being trained I uh, built no, they're being trained in um, youth, in the youth version uh, of mental health first aid. Very good. Um, can you talk a little bit also about, I know a lot of, since you're talking about youth, um, injuries that, that maybe adolescents um, have had uh, or young adults in terms of participating in sports and that sort of thing, and that sometimes that can be uh, an introduction to obviously a, um, a prescription opioid and, and how that can maybe cause problems on down the road. Yes, Dennis. You know, youth, um, youth sports, let's say, youth sports in both um, in high school and in college, that um, there was a concern that uh, youth were getting access to, um, were being prescribed um, opioids too liberally, and, and certainly that has happened. Um, and when we look at that prescription pill use, um, the kids' children um, can become quickly addicted to substances, um, particularly with you know your your opioids. And and certainly as someone that's uh, teaching in the school system or uh, an athletic trainer in the school system or uh, being ex- being working with any kind of youth groups, we need to pay attention to 
that managing youth pain and young adult pain, but certainly being mindful to what extent that they have access to um, opioids. Um, and another concern has been that once these, the youth or young adults get access and they become addicted, then you're going to find that they're going to start taking drugs um, that they find elsewhere in the house or maybe at, at, at grandma and grandpa's house. Um, and that really speaks to the importance of that we all need to make sure that if we have those types of medications in our households, that they really need to be locked up. There was a, a bright light shine upon um, what were called candy parties where kids would get together, um, they would take medications from other houses and come together and put the uh, prescription medications in a candy dish. And then they would take turns taking the medications and seeing what effect it has on them. Um, really not realizing what they're taking or what uh, the side effects might be. So um, youth in general don't, don't always make good decisions. And um, there's certainly, uh, there's a lot of concern with um, youth and addiction. And again, remembering that genetic component, um, that is a concern. Yeah, and I think especially when you think of uh, Title IX, which we all love in terms of uh, increasing, I know you were a, a college athlete and uh, and a professional athlete as well, if I'm not mistaken, in terms of the, your field your field hockey prowess. Um, you know, that is, is wonderful to, to get uh, more of our, um, of our, young women involved in sports, which is great and provides, you know, college opportunities for, for women, uh, but also, you know, for obviously for, for young men as well. But just the pressure sometimes that these children's feet, these, these kids feel because they're, in some ways, you know, there's a lot of pressure on them to do well in, uh, in their sports, uh, so that hopefully that would for them pay for their scholarship, you know, and get them you know, the full ride to college, even though the percentage of kids that absolutely happen, actually happens to is pretty small. Um, so in, in terms of, um, you know, those, you know, continuing along this um, genetic factors, do you want to talk a little bit more about that in terms of, um, you know, what, like, is it if your sibling or your parent has um, issues around uh, substance use, might you be a little bit more likely to, to have that as well? So there is um, the genetic component that at least half of the persons susceptible to drug addiction can be linked to genetics. So it's there's a high likelihood that if you have a parent that has a substance use disorder, um, you are more likely to um, have a substance use, you have a 50% chance higher to have a substance use disorder. So certainly it's something to be significantly mindful of. Um, and, you know, it's so it's not so much related to your sibling as much as um, where your bloodline is. So parents and, and grandparents. And certainly if you have a, a parent or grandparent on both sides of the family, though that increases your your risk um, substantially. So it's something to be mindful. 
is that nature or nurture? I, I'm not familiar with the literature um, in terms of that, or is that still something that they're working on? So they, there is a recent science that says there is a genetic link. So it is, it is in, in the genes, um, but certainly exposure to substance use um, can increase likelihood of, of you using. I've had clients that I've worked with whose parents um, actually shot them up when they were in elementary school, some others when they were in high school. Um, so certainly, though um, appalling to hear these stories, um, it's not unheard of that you know parents introduce substances to the children or young adults. Gotcha. And so I guess related to that, but not directly related to that perhaps is, so now that, you know, more and more states are having legal, um, mar uh, legal um, medical marijuana or um, legal uh, recreational marijuana, um, and I know Ohio now has legal medical marijuana, is that correct? Correct. And, but recreational is not legal there yet. Have you seen any uptick in it or any correlation in terms of that? Uh, no, that I I have not seen any change in substance use. Um, certainly, the there is peop, There's plenty that of research that says marijuana is a, a gateway drug to um, other drugs um, that are illicit. Um, I don't know if there's really a a real found link. So someone that uses heroin would have been more likely to have smoked marijuana um but um did did smoking marijuana lead to um heroin use um i i haven't seen any evidence that's strong linked to that but you can do the backward chaining and the backward chaining you'll see that um so in terms of pain i i I know a lot of occupational therapists, certainly uh, depending on the, the type of area that we're treating in or evaluating in, um, are, are helping to hopefully look to reduce in some way the use of opioids uh, in terms of, I know I have back pain myself and uh, when I do my, my stretches uh, and my uh, strengthening exercises, my back pain uh, can get better, but I'm not always great about doing those back exercises. Um, so just talk a little bit about occupational therapy's role with pain and and how we're um, how we're dealing with that that's great um, so you know when we think of adults um, or and older adults and those with chronic pain conditions uh, th these this is a great population for OTs to be engaged in um, and and to have non-pharmaceutical approaches to managing pain as the first step versus having them go straight into taking uh, pain medication. So when occupational therapists are working with pain, you know, one of the things I really suggest OTs do is take an occupational profile as, as usual, but also take um, a history of pain. And when you look at that history of pain and when you look at that occupational profile match that with what activities give you that pain what activities do you have least pain and and also look at um, what mitigates that pain to be relieved there's a variety of different population specific pain assessments 
that OOTs can have access to easily online and, and certainly using the models like the person environment occupation model or um, using some of the model of human occupation assessments or the COPM. All of those assessments are very helpful in addressing pain. You know, in the non-pharmacological ways that we can address pain as occupational therapists is using, you know, heat and cold. We can use vibration. Uh, we can use guided imagery, relaxation techniques. Cognitive behavioral has been found to be efficacious. Um, using um, expressive writing has been found to be efficacious. And, and using some of those, um, those activities uh, and, and movements such as Pilates or yoga or Tai Chi have been also found to be um, effective. One of the most effective techniques, um, if people take the time to do the mindfulness-based chronic pain management um, training, um, that's typically about a 13-week um, training. It's a psychoeducational training to be trained to be able to use that, that intervention, but it has been found to be very, very helpful and effective in addressing pain. So if you think about, you know, the treatments and the interventions that you're providing, um, what kind of groups would you run or what kind of individual treatments are you providing uh, to the individuals you're serving? Yeah, so I like to do groups that are um, really ap applied to them and, and, and something they'll find meaning in. You know, I was interested, I really found when I look at uh, looking at leisure and leisure engagement, one of the things that um, I found is that they often find barriers to why they can't engage in something or in a leisure activity. So one of the groups that I run for leisure is we um, look at um, activities and then why can't they, they barriers to be engaged in activities. So maybe a barrier to being engaged in activity might be um, cost. And as a group, we come up with solutions for that. And people identify what day the museum is free, what day the zoo is free, or what day transportation might be free in that city. So we'd like to look at what kind of activities that people want to engage in and what are some barriers. And as a group, we come up with solutions for that. And it seems to be helpful to the clients because they're coming up with activities and solutions that they can relate to. They're hearing it from their peers. We also have um, leisure interest surveys looking at activities they used to participate in and activities they may want to participate in in the future. And by giving them a list of, of, of activities, often they discover new activities that they hadn't thought of. Um, for example, um, maybe singing or playing the guitar. So they sometimes identify new activities that they hadn't thought of in the past. So um, that often is very helpful. And I can let you know that everyone in Ohio apparently likes to fish. Fishing is big. I don't see them fishing, but there's a lot of fishing in um, interest in leisure. You know. So you're giving out like hooks and... and <laughs> Uh, fishing line to ba people. Basically, right? And, and, 
and bait. You know, some hot dogs for bait, of course. Or white white bread also a big bait, for whatever reason. If you like carp, which I'm not a carp person, but some people are. Right. Another group we often do is addressing sleep. And, and, and uh, clients really like this because sleep and rest is very disturbed and disrupted whenever they're using their substance of choice. Um, so those that use opioids tend to be up for days at a time, whereas on opposed to those with alcohol use disorder, um, instead of, you know, air quotes, going to bed, it's passing out. Uh, and then once you stop using substances, your sleep is disrupted still, but just in a different way. So really looking at um, good sleep hygiene and, and doing some education around sleep hygiene, um, the clients find that to be um, really, really helpful. And uh, we do a, also a leisure exploration group of um, what they're, what might be important to them. And, and this is kind of a fun group. Um, we have them outline their hands. I know this sounds corny, um, but we have them outline their hands on a sheet of paper and on one hand, things they want to let go of. And um, on the other hand, things they want to hold on to. And instead of putting words in their hands, we have them draw images. Um, and that really is another way of tapping into their sense of self. And and we we share that, you know, some people might want to hold on to their to their friends and family and other people might want to let go of them because they're the source of substance use. Um, so it's just an interesting way of looking at what your values are in a, in a very concrete way. Um, and, you know, and then sometimes it's holding on to, you know, self-respect and letting go of anger or letting go of, of shame. Or so it could be a feeling, a thought, a place. It it, it doesn't really matter. And um, clients, <laughs> even um, my my big guys that tend not to want to do a, a craft as they call it, uh, once they sit there and we're playing music and they're talking amongst themselves, even um, these gentlemen enjoy the group. And then also helping um, clients in a belonging group to identify with with whom they feel the sense of belonging and teaching them that belonging isn't just like with people. Um, it could be a sense of community, like being a Buckeye. Because even though you're in Indiana, you're still a Buckeye dentist. Or, you know, or like another sense of belonging might be uh, walking in nature gives you a sense of belonging. Or the spirituality aspect of uh, when I pray, I feel a sense of belonging. So teaching um, our clients that there's there's other ways of belonging and having them share amongst themselves what belonging means to them and how they can foster that once they leave. Great. And I appreciate you having people draw those images instead of t uh, cutting them out of the magazine, as you know, I have a, a long-term uh distaste for the magazine picture collage which should be banned from the earth but that's just me um so we're um how is it how does it or how do you manage when you're working with um you know clients that don't see their their substance use as being a problem um and how where do you go from that where maybe you see it as a problem for them and but they don't see it as a problem 
Um, well, there's there's a couple ways. Sometimes in individual treatments, we'll explore how substance use has helped and supported them. You know, you know where, you know where 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 are the benefits of using, um, and then what are some some things that you may have lost or have caused you more problems because of using. So trying to do some, that kind of exploration, but um, in in reality. Um, People come to recovery when they're ready, so um, it, there there really isn't much anyone can say or do um, that people have to be ready to be in recovery to be successful in their recovery and to sustain their recovery. And and I think as someone that works with substance use, um, you you have to. I have to be okay with someone not being ready. I, I can't be more ready for them than they are for them. Does that make sense? I can hold a candle out there for them, right? It'd be a shining light, but um, I, can't, I can't drag them to that recovery. Sure. So what, what, in terms of working with this population, what would you say is the most rewarding part of it and the, maybe the, the part that's most challenging? Uh, I think the most rewarding part is... Um, I see that we can really make a difference um, and looking at occupational therapy and what we stand for. Um, occupational therapy is uniquely positioned to assist with examining and reestablishing those occupations, those habits, behaviors, routines, and roles and identities that are so deeply meaningful to the individuals. And, and when we're able to do that, and when you see the light bulb go go off in our clients, and they're like they're committed to the recovery, then um, that's that's just wildly uh, rewarding. Um, the the barrier the the what, what what the question was, what's difficult is seeing, you know, the same clients, you know, time after time. Or, sadly, hearing that they pass from an overdose. Because, um, you know, everyone has the right uh, for recovery. And everyone also has the right for treatment. And we don't have enough um, long-term treatment sites for folks. So in terms of your particular um, place where you're, you're seeing folks, do they bill for OT services? Is that part of the room rate? Are those provided by students. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, it's it's based on the room rate. Each each place, each setting um, manages billing differently. Um, some, um, some places bill under Medicare Part B. Um, some in some sites bill as a bed rate. Most places bill as a bed rate. Um, for occupational therapy. Mm -hmm. So that's basically the, they're reimbursed per day that the individual right. is there. And then there's some freedom that the administration of that facility has in terms of, are they going to hire, you know, obviously you need nurses and physicians, but are they going to hire, you know, OTs to run the groups or, or nurses or social workers? So there's sort of a thing? substance um, use, there's a substance recovery 
place currently in Columbus, and they were deciding between hiring a clinical nurse practitioner in mental health or an OT, and they opted for an occupational therapist um, because of the services we can try. No kidding, because of the services that we can provide. Uh, but a lot of my service, not all of it, but a lot of my service is um, level level one um, level fieldwork sites. So I'll, I'll have students come and do treatments with me, um, but then I'll continue the treatments um, once they're done with the rotations. Well, the nice thing is that that obviously the exposure for those students, and I know we've had several, I, I guess I can't say we anymore. Uh, Ohio State's had several students that have really been interested in pursued mental health careers um, and even in substance abuse because of those experiences. Yes. Um, so what, what kind of advice would you have for OT practitioners who are interested in learning more about this population or trying to figure out a way that they could have this as part of their role? as an occupational therapy yeah, practitioner. I would, again, appreciate that um, there's a role for occupational therapist uh, across um, the lifespan in addressing the opioid crisis in working with children, working with adolescents, working with uh, people with pain. So there is a role for us throughout. If, if you're interested in working in mental health, I would advocate for having an occupational therapist in a mental health setting. So for example, um, I've had um, settings where we've approached and said, we think you should embed an, you, Dennis, you and I did this together, that um, you should embed an occupational therapist in this behavioral health outpatient clinic and um, giving them reasons um, to do that. I think one of the things occupational therapists have to be okay with is having a job title that might not say occupational therapist. It might be um, a health coach, um, but you're an occupational therapist as a health coach and you're doing occupational therapy as it. Sometimes they just don't, it's just sometimes sites just don't have a job title available to hire someone in under the name occupational therapist, but they do have a title to, to be a healthcare provider. And it's not necessarily under um, the title of occupational therapist, but that's what they're hiring you as. Yeah. Well, and it's that being able to confidently articulate the value and beauty of our profession. Um, I had a, a someone in Florida within, you know, I, my primary work is with employment for young adults with intellectual disability. And I, a, a person that ran a, 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 I think it was an ARC or a Goodwill so he had an OT that applied off the street, sort of, and he hired them uh, because I talked so much about how great OT is with that population. And then he called with this OT, like, okay, now what do we do? So that's a good problem to have if you can backfill that. But it's it's that confidence and belief and the value of occupation, you know, and it is, you know, how we spend our time matters. And uh, we... Well, I was thinking about OPE, um, the, the researcher OPE, occupational therapist she once wrote occupational therapy goes beyond helping clients to stop drug use it prepares clients to fill whatever void the substance leaves behind with productive occupations and like you were just saying about occupations and and uh, how we 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 bring that that distinct um, aspect to the table well dr robinson thank you so much i've really enjoyed our time together and i know our our listeners have as well thank you dennis it's been a joy to have this conversation with you